Hear ye, hear ye. I got a couple announcements. Uh, first, if you're watching this on YouTube, I do got video of this whole thing. I'm just doing the intro uh, audio only. Uh, and it's going to be an incredible episode. If you're one of those econ nerds out there, you're going to like this one. We go deep into, uh, you know, economic type stuff. Uh, and then also next week's episode, I'm putting out two episodes at the same time. It's going to be audio only. I'm not going to be putting it up on YouTube at all. So I just like to make this shit complicated. You want to be a fan of the run your mouth podcast. You're going to have to put in the work on your end. So just to clarify this episode, there's video. But if you're listening to this intro and you're like, I don't get it. Why, 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 why am I on YouTube and there's no video? Just give it a second. I'm going to make a couple announcements. I'm going to plug a few sponsors and not even that many sponsors. You probably even know who they are and you should have already purchased their products. But anyways, there's going to be video in a second. But next week's episode, which is actually this week's episode, because I'm putting back out back-to-back episodes. Jesus Christ, this is more complicated than it should be. And I shouldn't be taking uh, the Christian's Lord's name in vain. So I apologize for that as well. We're not really off to a very smooth start here. So let me start these announcements over. I apologize for the bad announcements. I should have gotten my thoughts organized before we got started. There's going to be video of this episode. It's all about economics. Next week's episode, which is also this week's episode, so I'm putting out two weeks' episode at the same time, uh, you're going to have to go download off of iTunes. And while you're there, you might as well rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, jerk off, be in a good mood, eat a sandwich, enjoy your day, uh, and, you know, help me make the podcast good. All right, so before I start this episode, shout out to Sheath Underwear, the most comfortable underwear, and it's summertime. You, you're crazy if you're not wearing sheath. You separate your balls from your dick, nothing gets sweaty, you can exercise without getting rashes. If you got a big dick, it's not going to be flopping around all over the place. Promo code RYM, you get 20% off. Dude, I took some Kratom last night in the shed. Oh my God, did I have a good night. Single pill? Woo, that'll give you some energy. We went for three hours. I fought sit on everything. It was a good time. If you don't listen to the Shedcast, go check it out. I mean, I fought the hell out of these people. I mean, they, they are so wrong on some stuff. If you want to find out how wrong shed people can be, you spend too much time in sheds. That's why I only go there once a week. Once a week, I can handle without turning into a person that's wrong on everything. You ain't out in a shed every day of your life. You can never be right on anything ever. I think Harrington probably grew up in a shed. I don't know. Harrington doesn't even work on the show anymore. There's no reason for me to shit on him. But I'm just saying if you want an example of a person who can be wrong on everything consistently, Harrington would be a good example of a shed dweller. Not sure whether or not he's living in sheds, but I would just venture to guess that he has to be with his consistency of being wrong on things. Uh, anyways, uh, Kratom, YoKratom.com, home of the $6 kilo. You can pick up a whole kilo. And then of course, Yo Delta. Dudes, I got the, I got those gummies, uh, up in my freezer. I like keeping them in the freezer. I'm, I'm very Jewish that way. I feel like they'll stash longer. Could be that there's no reason for putting them in the freezer. Uh, but you know, there's no reason to track in your drug, drug dealer. Of course, this is for 21 only. Uh, all right. Anyways, I also, I got a new sketch out. Go check it out. I mean, if you're watching this on the YouTube, Robbie the Fire, all one word. I, I can't believe how much work went into that thing for a simple shoot, but I think it came out pretty good. I also did guest appearances on Shane Hazel and Joshua Smith's podcast. Uh, both of those were a really good time and they're doing some good work for the Liberty movement. So if you were looking for even more of me, three episodes, a part of the problem and a run your mouth and a shed cast weren't enough. Go check out both Shane Hazel's and Joshua Smith's show. Of course, dude, live gigs. If you're in DC, firstly, I'm going to be going down today to DC and I don't know what I'm up to tonight. So 
if you want to come have sex with me in my hotel room, I, I did take the hotel room that they had put aside for Dave for the two shows because he needs to get back in one night. And I told him, hey, Dave's very finicky, so you better get him a suite. He doesn't show up to gigs unless, unless there's a suite for Dave Smith. He's not performing in your town. That was the demand I made of the venue. And the venue's like, all right, if you're telling us we need a suite, we'll get you a suite. So I'm just saying, male, female, fat, skinny, you want a fucking Dave Smith's hotel room, uh, hit me up. Twitter, uh, Robbie the Fire, all one word. I'm going to be alone in Washington, D.C. tonight, just getting drunk in Dave Smith's hotel suite. So, you know, you want to help me get this orgy off the ground, just hit me up on Twitter, Robbie the Fire. Uh, and then, of course, I'm there with uh, BK Chris and Dave Smith. We're doing a live podcast, and we're also doing some stand-up. Uh, not all that many tickets left, so, and I, you know, who knows how much longer till they reshut down the country. So you got to come out while you can. And then Nashville starting to come together. People are starting to pick up some tickets. That's going to be a great time. Uh, we've got the Rochester show coming up. And now let's do a full episode. Th- dude, this one was so much fun. I love, you know, for all, for as much as I love just yelling into the mic, uh, you know, being a person who just screams about things that they're unsure about. Sometimes it's nice actually getting people that know what they're talking about, and then you can ask them questions and learn some things. So I really enjoyed this episode. Thank you to our guests. Let's get into it. All right, and now we got a special segment coming up, which is uh, I was trying to read Rothbard's uh, Austrian Business Cycle Theory, which is not an actual book he put out. It's a piece from, by the way, God bless capitalism and the uh, Mises Institute because they've suckered me into buying books that I've already bought now like three times. Because oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, I got into a book and then I got really into Rothbard. I was like, I'm buying everything. And then I bought these little pamphlets I thought were full-size books that then turned out just to be something that belonged in a book I'd already read. But sure. lucky for me, most of the time when I read Bar- Rothbard, I have no idea what the fuck he's talking about. And I pretend like I do. And then you give me something I already read and I'm like, I, I still don't understand this. So um, it, the way that I like to book guests on the Run Your Mouth podcast is on a first answer on Twitter basis. So in this case, I was reading uh, um, <laughs> the pamphlet book on a book I already own, which is the Austrian uh, business cycle theory. Now, the Austrian business cycle theory is something that I pretend to know very well. It's something I've brought up on the part of the problem podcast. It's uh, something I thought I had a deep understanding of until the pamphlet of it was in front of me. And it really summed the thing down to just about nothing. And I'm like, I'm not sure I follow this. So I put it on Twitter and a pretty bow tie boy got right back to me. He had a fancy little bow tie and he's like, I'll talk to you. And like I said, the way we book this podcast is on a first answer on Twitter basis. So, uh, Pretty bow tie boy. You actually put on your nicest bow tie. It's late Friday night. Uh, I don't know if you've been drinking or not, but you put on your nicest bow tie, your bow tie, your nicest shirt. I appreciate that you uh, dolled up for the king. How's it going, bud? It's going great, man. You know, I I have not been drinking. I've been feeling under the weather. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I got um, the Ronas. You're a young handsome you know, man. You know, I uh, maybe I didn't get a test because I'm not sure it matters too much. Because whether I have the cold or the flu, either way, I'm not going into the office this week. But, oh, okay. But yeah, I put on my, it's a Mises Institute bow tie. I don't know if you can see it's the oh, crest. That's nerdy as shit, dude. So, you know, I, I, was, I was lucky to be on Twitter just at the right time. Where, so uh, before we get into it, I've invited, I bullshit all the time on this show. So I'm not, I'm not against people coming on and bullshitting. It sounds to me like you might actually have a pretty good understanding of this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, I mean, I don't even know how old you are. So maybe you just had your bar mitzvah. You spent your bar mitzvah money on that bow tie. 
why don't you give us a little bit of uh, your actual background and uh, your expertise in the topic? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Anton Chamberlain. I'm 24. So I'm a little past uh, bar mitzvah age. I'm not Jewish either. So wouldn't have had that anyway. Um, I have a, a BA. I got my BA in economics at Lowell University in New Orleans under Walter Block. Then I got an MA at Troy University, also in economics. And then I'll be starting a PhD in a couple of weeks at Middle Tennessee State. I've done eight Mises universities, and this is my second year as a summer fellow here at the Mises Institute. So here's what I'm learning. Just throwing out on Twitter, you might actually get the right guess. So <laughs> Fingers crossed I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dude, well, uh, thanks for reaching out to us. I actually just watched today on... Uh, on my car ride in, I was sitting in the worst traffic and I got to do a better job of like lining up shit while I'm in traffic. Cause if you give me like something good, I, I don't lose my mind. And I was listening to Bob Murphy did a pre presentation on the uh, plumbing of the financial system, which was fascinating. And apparently he put out a book, which uh, it's going to be next on my list. I, I think he just put it up online. Um, oh, the understanding money mechanics. Yeah. 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 So I, I listened to that lecture. It was awesome. And then I, next year, I'm going to have to reach out to them to see if I can attend because uh, uh, like the second I heard that lecture, I got really excited about it. Um, and that lecture was great. I'm definitely going to read that. I, I'm already reading, uh, which is a giant book and thus far I'm loving it, is uh, um, Reisman's uh, Capitalism, which oh, is sure, pretty. Sure. Have you read that? I've not read that, but it's it's in the Institute bookstore. I've seen it a million times. I've seen it referenced a million times. I'm sure it's great. But yeah, it's freaking massive. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, and I was reluctant to approach this book because of the size. Uh, but he's a very clear writer, and it's like a rundown on everything. And uh, I'm 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 enjoying it thus far. I'm only sixty pages in, and usually around one fifty is when my ADD strikes, and then like I read another hundred and realize I didn't understand one word of it. Um, but I'm enjoying, I, 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 thus far I'm enjoying it after that. I'm going to go on a little bit of a Bob Murphy, uh, binge and hopefully get him on the podcast, but let's actually get into, uh, the business cycle, uh, theory. So I'm reading, I'm reading, uh, Rothbard's book about it. And just to start out, I agree with the premise. I honestly, and this is mostly from what I read from Stockman's, the great deformation. And from what I understand of credit asset bubbles, I do believe that when you look at depressions and you look at the problems that are in the markets, it's that the Fed causes bubbles. And so depressions are going to be a natural consequence of the capital expansion that the Fed engages in. So the conclusion of Rothbard, which is in the most important piece, would be to say, hey, listen, there's going to be a natural consequence to, you know, basically credit expansionary policies by government, the Fed printing money. And so let's understand that there will be a depression and the depression is actually the cure because we're getting rid of basically all of the failed and bad investments that were a natural consequence of credit expansion. Uh, and so let's understand that depressions are actually a good thing because it's the cure for and the natural consequence of the Fed printing money. If you just want to look at like the uh, the best example, and I've heard Dave Smith say this, and I believe he heard it from, um, what's his name? Schiff, Peter Schiff. It's the hangover. If you go out and you, you drink like crazy and you got a hangover the next day, hangovers suck, but you kind of have to go through it. If you got a meeting and you decide that you're going to do some blow to like up your hangover, you're probably going to make the problem worse. If you do that for 10 years, guess what? Now you're a drug addict. And your heart's probably going to give it, going to give out. So that's essentially what the Fed keeps doing. 
is that it prints money to get us out of the problem that it caused. And it kind of continues to try and expand credit, which is only making us sicker and sicker. So thus far, I feel that, um, like I said, that's the core of what Rothbard is getting at. And I agree with I agree with it. I agree that the Fed causes bubbles and it causes the problems. Before we get into my questions of the way he puts together the theory, I'll stop there because I'm sure you have some thoughts on what I just said. So yeah, I think <clears throat> I think the hangover is, is a good analogy. It's one that's used in there's a video that I'm sure you've seen that's you know Keynes versus Hike rap battle. And in that video, uh, Keynes gets just keeps getting drunk and they just keep giving him more alcohol to kind of perpetuate the thing. The example that was given at Mises U Where's, last uh, week. I actually haven't seen that. Where can people find it? Oh, it's um somewhere on YouTube. I'll just put Keynes versus Hayek rap battle. There are two, actually. I think the second one's better than the first one. Anyway. Um, but so at Mises U last week, the example that was given was not alcohol, but perhaps one that you'd be more akin to. So if you took shrooms. All right. And you, uh, it'd be akin to uh, thinking all of a sudden, you know, Robbie, you open up your, your fridge. And because of the shrooms, you think you have like 20 million sandwiches. Hell yeah, this is the and best so, trip of my life, dude. <laughs> right? So you're looking at it, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't need to go to the grocery store for like the rest of my life. Why would I? So then why would I bother allocating capital and the resources of mine? Why would I bother using my money to go get get food when I've got sandwiches until right, I, I don't die? need to work anymore. Are you kidding me? I got yeah, all so why sandwiches. Would you, yeah, and so then, you know, you have two options once once the high starts to wear off. You can either take another shroom and kind of just keep pretending that you have, you know, a shit ton of, of sandwiches waiting for you. Or as the high wears off, you realize, oh, crap, I have two sandwiches. Right. And I've completely, I've completely misallocated my resources, whether it be time, whether it be my money. And so that's, kind of, that's, when, that's when the bust hits. It, the bust is this necessary reallocation process because the, all the boom was was this kind of, you know, you were either drunk, as you said, you were high. You had a misunderstanding of what the, the, uh, the capital structure and the economy looked like. And so you readjusted according to this misunderstanding and the bust has to happen after that. Because By the you- way, th- that is a perfect example with the mushrooms and the sandwiches that if you think you're all set, you don't, you don't go out, you don't work. And when you discover that you aren't, it might suck to make that discovery, but you got to make the changes to build off of that. And I, I know that I've said this before on the show, but it's almost like, <coughs> excuse me. It's almost like with, uh, with Bernie Madoff at some point they discover that he's running a Ponzi scheme. So what you can do is pretend that it's not a Ponzi scheme because until you actually label, hey, this is a Ponzi scheme, it's not like it's almost like a bank that there's a run on the bank, but you haven't announced, hey, we're out of funds yet. You haven't closed the doors. So until you do that, you know what I mean? The asset's still alive. Like until you kind of announce, hey, this is a Ponzi scheme, Bernie Madoff's funds still exist. And there are individuals who think that they've got giant retirement accounts with Bernie Madoff. And so they're living a certain lifestyle because they think they have a certain amount of um, of assets, right? So it would be dumb to go, hey, this is going to suck. So you know what? Let's not tell anybody. Because as long as we don't tell anybody, they don't have to adjust down their lifestyles. They don't have to sell their current homes. They don't have to get rid of their vacation homes. So let's just not make the announcement. So what you start to realize about the larger um, financial system, in my opinion, is that most of the money in the system doesn't really exist. It's kind of what happened in the um, in the last uh, recession is that they had to write down a lot of collateral that existed in mortgage-backed securities. When they had to write down that collateral, 
all of a sudden they realize, oh my God, there's a ton of money that doesn't exist in the system. Things are going to start defaulting. And it's almost like noticing that Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme doesn't exist, right? And so if you're a bank, you got to make changes to what you're doing. Now, the reason why they don't allow for those changes to happen, and this is, is I find it's like a hostage situation where they've got common people such as they've got my money in the bank, they've got pension plans in the bank. Like, and so what they do is they pretend, Hey, listen, like it's a hostage situation where they're like, Hey, if, th if this asset goes belly up, we're all fucked. Like you look at the repo market, right? Which is well, a year ago it was out of control the other way where the fed had to loan the money. Now it's out of control where they're trying to get money off, like out of the system, which I don't quite understand. Maybe we can get into later. Um, but what I think it comes down to is that there's certain critical assets that you would notice that there's a problem in, right? Like the repo market, you would notice that there's a problem. The, pro the thing is, once you notice there's a problem, you got to start making some adjustments. And then the bank kind of starts having to go under because you got to make all sorts of adjustments. Then at some point that goes all the way to fucking over the pension funds because the banks did a good job of wrapping all of our money up into their, like, into their thing. But just what I just said is extremely complicated. Your mushroom example is perfect that there's a problem in the system. And until we acknowledge the problem, we're, we're just remaining in La La Land and remaining in La La Land doesn't allow you to start making the adjustments of, oh shit, I got to go out and get myself some more sandwiches. No. And, and the longer you, 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 you insist that you stay in La La Land, the worse the bus has to be because so after the initial interest rate suppression, everything that's being done in the economy is wanting to push the interest rate back up and it starts to do so. And so then the Fed realizes, well, we have a couple, we have two options here. We can either uh, let the interest rate go back up and let any real allocation that needs to happen take place, or we can push it back down and try and keep it down. But if you keep doing that, then you can run to the problem of hyperinflation. And so what you have is um, you have the market that's saying, no, no, the interest rate needs to be a lot higher based on what our time preference is as a society. But the Fed is forcing it to be pushed back down. And so you're having, so like what we saw in the, early 2000s is you had kind of two different uh, aspects of this same thing going on where you had a lot of construction companies that were realizing, oh, when the dot-com bubble burst, nothing really happened. Housing prices, housing must be a really safe investment. So we're going to use a lot of our resources to try and uh, increase construction. Well, as that happens, more and more people are bidding for resources. And so these construction companies are realizing, oh crap, there isn't enough lumber. There aren't enough resources in the economy to build, to finish all the houses we've started. And so as that starts to work its way through, then you have these projects that don't get completed. You have workers that have to start being laid off. Then on the flip side, you also had a lot of uh, subprime mortgages being given out to people that were getting mortgages on houses they sh had no business getting mortgages for. And so as soon as the economy starts to show its weakness on that aspect, well, as soon as one person loses their job, they lose their job for one month and they can't afford the mortgage that was given to them because it was an insane mortgage. And so that's where you get the, the housing crisis kind of starting from these two different ends where in the construction aspect of housing, there are not enough resources in the economy to, con to finish all these projects because resources were not made up or were not made available during the period. And then you have people on the other end that were given loans because of the low interest rates that they should not have been given. And then they start defaulting. And this is where uh, this is what makes it a business cycle theory is the fact you have these clusters of errors by a lot of people at one time. Because we're not talking about fluctuations. We're not talking about supply shocks. We're talking about a business cycle, right? And so what you have to understand, what you have to explain with your theory is why are a lot of people making very similar mistakes all at the same time? And it's because of the 
It's because of how uh, prevalent interest rate is and how money circulates the entire economy. And so that's why you have all these people all the same times making different mistakes, but er but mistakes that are so all tied think, to the manipulation of interest rate. And the vernacular just to add to add there is essentially that there's signals that every entrepreneur, yeah. every single bank, every single industry is working off particular signals. And so if there's a signal issue where they all can make mail investment, they will. And so the 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 mail investment here um is essentially I guess in thinking that more like, or if you go back to the housing market, that more people can afford homes than actually can is level one of malinvestment, right? Level two of malinvestment is that they think that the housing market is only continuously going up. And so people start borrowing that money to buy other assets, right? Which kind of just gives this false picture of wealth. And so that false picture of wealth further expands the issue because then people start making investments thinking like, oh, look how wealthy this society is. Look how much they're going to be able to consume in the future. And so it's kind of like um, escalating false signals, which get people to start making investments because they think that there's going to be people to uh, purchase products or services that won't actually have the capital or money in the future to do so. Exactly. Because yeah, as you said, so the interest rate is very much a signal. And what it signals is is the rate of time preference that society has. So a higher interest rate tells you know businesses, it tells everyone that consumers, we want to consume right now. We don't want to wait. We want to consume right now. And so businesses will plan their investments accordingly. Low interest rate means we don't want to consume right now. We want to consume in the future. And so then businesses look at that as like, okay, we'll make investments that aren't going to pay off in the next year, but they'll pay off in five years, but that's fine because you're telling us that you don't want to consume, consume right now anyway, you want to consume in the future. But when you artificially push down the interest rate, consumers have not changed their, their propensity consume, to consume in the present or in the future. But businesses look at that and they're like, oh, well, I'm going to start investing in these long-term investment projects, these long-term production processes. And it's when, it's when there's this misallocation, uh, this miss, uh, when there isn't this, when time preference and resource allocation are not in sync is when you get overconsumption, but also malinvestment. Because when because the interest rate- To explain the malinvestment, uh, people are, are just putting money into investments that are not going to pay off yeah. because they, uh, they had the market wrong. Like, look at it this way. If last year I would have bought, and let's say I got $100 million dollars and built a hundred multiplexes, the biggest, most beautiful, I was Donald Trump. They're going to be the biggest, most beautiful multiplexes. No one's seen a movie theater like this. So I'm Donald Trump. I'm leaving office. I'm going to get into the movie business and I build the biggest, most beautiful movie theaters anyone's ever seen. Right. Yeah. All of a sudden COVID hits. Guess what? I had the market wrong. Or if all of a sudden Netflix, Disney, and every other major movie studio goes, you know what? We're not doing movie theaters anymore. We're doing everything digitally. I got the market wrong. And so if you have the market wrong, your investment's going to go belly up. That's the way it works, yeah. right? But it needs to go belly up. If you continue to keep something like movie theaters that nobody's going to visit alive, mm -hmm. right? So then, you know, someone else might start going, making an investment on behalf of the fact that they're seeing all the multiplexes. Yeah. Before we get into my movies, oh, if you got something on that, go for it. Oh, yeah. Just that, um, but, but what makes a business cycle important is that, of course, all throughout the market economy, you have people that correctly and incorrectly predict the future. And it's the role of the markets kind of weed out the bad entrepreneurs. But what we see in business cycles, a lot of entrepreneurs and particularly a lot of entrepreneurs that have proven themselves in the past to be good entrepreneurs, all of a sudden they're the ones making huge mistakes. 
and a lot of them at the same time. And so that's kind of what we what we see with it. But because so the way the interest rate works is it helps allocate resources intertemporally as well as well. So when you when consumers say I don't want to consume now, then business owners they can say, okay, I'm going to take these resources that I can now purchase because you don't want because we're not busy with today. I can these resources are now freed up through through savings that you're that you're demonstrating because that's how the interest rate gets pushed down, right? And the way it should is people. So let's, they, let, I want to break down some of these elements and let's start with Rothbard's line, which I may or may not have right, okay. but he 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 puts it into it's basically two sentences that um, business will make investments based off of consumers' time preference, uh-huh. right? And if um, a lower a lower interest rate indicates a higher time prime for time a higher time per, no do i have that backwards okay well let's explain let's just explain what this means to people if there's more money available right there's more money being lent out the interest rate's going to be lower yeah. right and so what that means is that there's more people willing to lend their money that's what that means yeah so the and way other- the way it'll be manifested is my time preference will change my time preference lowers so I'm less willing to consume in the present. So I'll take more of my money and give it to the bank and put it in the bank. To, and it'll be a part of the loanable funds market. It'll and be so, savings or whatever. And so the more people that are doing that, the, then the, then the lower price of the borrowing money has rate, to come down. Yeah. Right. Because there's more supply of money. Exactly. And so they don't have to offer you as high of an interest rate in order for, to get you to give them money. Yeah. If, however, everybody wants to spend their money right now, so I'm going to have to incentivize you where I'll be like, dude, give me 8%. Like I will give you yeah, 8% right. if you give me your money. Quit spending your money. I will give you the 8%, right? So the issue becomes if all of a sudden I'm looking at the market and I see a 0% interest rate. So I must think, oh my God, everybody is saving and lending their money. That money is practically free to get because nobody wants to spend their money. Everybody yeah. would rather lend it out and so there's no interest rate to be given. So step one is that there's an evaluation of consumer preferences based off of the interest rate. That's the first signal is if you're a business, you're looking at the interest rate and a high interest rate would indicate the fact that people are spending their money right now, right? And yeah. if there's a low interest rate, that would suggest that people are saving and that there's more money available to be lent to you. So that's step one. Exactly. Step two is businesses then look at that and they decide whether or not they're going to um, make investments in what Rothbard refers to as the higher order of productions or the lower level of productions. This is what you were talking about. Lower level of productions are like, uh, you know, movie tickets, cars, going to a store, basically all of your immediate consumption needs versus higher order productions. It's like, it's like this, you know, if there's a cash grab right now, if I'm in a business, like let's say I, got, I run a hot dog stand, let's keep it like really simple. So if I run a hot dog stand and people are buying hot dogs like crazy, mm-hmm. now maybe there are things I could be doing to make my hot dog process more efficient, but I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm not shutting down my cart to make these improvements. People are buying hot dogs right now. So you're like, fuck it. Let's sell all the hot dogs that we can, yeah. right? Now, if nobody's currently buying hot dogs or it's like, you know, it, or people buy hot dogs over the summer and all of a sudden it's winter and people aren't buying hot dogs. Now I got an opportunity to go, hey, Instead of just trying to buy like buns and paying more workers and doing everything to like just spin out hot dogs, I'm going to invest in my cart. Maybe I'm going to put a better oven in here. That would be a higher order of production where essentially I'm making an investment because I think that if I can make my processes more efficient, 
when demand goes up, I'm going to be able to sell more products. That's the difference between basically lower, low, like the lower level of production is going, Hey, people are consuming immediately. So I'm going to invest in being able to sell them shit immediately. Higher order production goes, people aren't consuming that much right now. So let me invest in my, you know, my equipment so that I can be more efficient and sell them more in the future. Yeah, exactly. The higher order goods, you know, you start investing in factories, you start investing in machinery, you start investing in longer route, uh, longer uh, production processes that will give you more output. But there's but there's a time gap that you have to account for. And that time that you have to account for only makes sense if the interest rate's sufficiently low. Hear ye, hear ye. I got a couple announcements. Uh, first, if you're watching this on YouTube, I do got video of this whole thing. I'm just doing the intro uh, audio only. Uh, and it's going to be an incredible episode. If you're one of those econ nerds out there, you're going to like this one. We go deep into, uh, you know, economic type stuff. Uh, and then also next week's episode, I'm putting out two episodes at the same time. It's going to be audio only. I'm not going to be putting it up on YouTube at all. So I just like to make this shit complicated. You want to be a fan of the run your mouth podcast. You're going to have to put in the work on your end. So just to clarify this episode, there's video. But if you're listening to this intro and you're like, I don't get it. Why, 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 why am I on YouTube and there's no video? Just give it a second. I'm going to make a couple announcements. I'm going to plug a few sponsors and not even that many sponsors. You probably even know who they are and you should have already purchased their products. But anyways, there's going to be video in a second. But next week's episode, which is actually this week's episode, because I'm putting back out back-to-back episodes, Jesus Christ, this is more complicated than it should be, and I shouldn't be taking uh, the Christian's Lord's name in vain, so I apologize for that as well. We're not really off to a very smooth start here. So let me start these announcements over. I apologize for the bad announcements. I should have gotten my thoughts organized before we got started. There's going to be video of this episode. It's all about economics. Next week's episode, which is also this week's episode, so I'm putting out two weeks' episode at the same time, uh, you're going to have to go download off of iTunes. And while you're there, you might as well rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, jerk off, be in a good mood, eat a sandwich, enjoy your day, uh, and, you know, help me make the podcast good. All right, so before I start this episode, shout out to Sheath Underwear, the most comfortable underwear, and it's summertime. You, you're crazy if you're not wearing sheath. You separate your balls from your dick, nothing gets sweaty, you can exercise without getting rashes. If you got a big dick, it's not going to be flopping around all over the place. Promo code RYM, you get 20% off. Dude, I took some Kratom last night in the shed. Oh my God, did I have a good night. Single pill? Woo, that'll give you some energy. We went for three hours. I fought sit on everything. It was a good time. If you don't listen to the Shedcast, go check it out. I mean, I fought the hell out of these people. I mean, they, they are so wrong on some stuff. If you want to find out how wrong shed people can be, you spend too much time in sheds. That's why I only go there once a week. Once a week, I can handle without turning into a person that's wrong on everything. You ain't out in a shed every day of your life. You can never be right on anything ever. I think Harrington probably grew up in a shed. I don't know. Harrington doesn't even work on the show anymore. There's no reason for me to shit on him. But I'm just saying if you want an example of a person who can be wrong on everything consistently, Harrington would be a good example of a shed dweller. Not sure whether or not he's living in sheds, but I would just venture to guess that he has to be with his consistency of being wrong on things. Uh, anyways, uh, Kratom, YoKratom.com, home of the $6 kilo. You can pick up a whole kilo. And then of course, Yo Delta. Dudes, I got the, I got those gummies, uh, up in my freezer. I like keeping them in the freezer. I'm, I'm very Jewish that way. I feel like they'll stash longer. Could be that there's no reason for putting them in the freezer. Uh, but you know, there's no reason to track down your drug, drug dealer. Of course, this is for 21 only. Uh, all right. Anyways, I also, I got a new sketch out. Go check it out. I mean, if you're watching this on the YouTube, Robbie the Fire, all one word. 
I, I can't believe how much work went into that thing for a simple shoot, but I think it came out pretty good. I also did guest appearances on Shane Hazel and Joshua Smith's podcast. Uh, both of those were a really good time, and they're doing some good work for the Liberty Movement. So if you were looking for even more of me, three episodes of Part of the Problem and a Run Your Mouth and a Shedcast weren't enough, go check out both Shane Hazel's and Joshua Smith's show. Of course, dude, live gigs. If you're in DC, firstly, I'm going to be going down today to DC and I don't know what I'm up to tonight. So if you want to come have sex with me in my hotel room, I, I did take the hotel room that they had put aside for Dave for the two shows because he needs to get back in one night. And I told him, hey, Dave's very finicky. So you better get him a suite. He doesn't show up to gigs unless, unless there's a suite for Dave Smith. He's not performing in your town. That was the demand I made of the venue. And the venue's like, all right, if you're telling us we need a suite, we'll get you a suite. So I'm just saying, Male, female, fat, skinny, you want a fucking Dave Smith's hotel room, uh, hit me up. Twitter, uh, Robbie the Fire, all one word. I'm going to be alone in Washington, D.C. tonight, just getting drunk in Dave Smith's hotel suite. So, you know, you want to help me get this orgy off the ground, just hit me up on Twitter, Robbie the Fire. Uh, and then, of course, I'm there with uh, BK Chris and Dave Smith. We're doing a live podcast, and we're also doing some stand-up. Uh, not all that many tickets left, so, and I, you know... Who knows how much longer till they reshut down the country. So you got to come out while you can. And then Nashville starting to come together. People are starting to pick up some tickets. That's going to be a great time. Uh, we've got the Rochester show coming up. And now let's do a full episode. Th dude, this one was so much fun. I love, you know, for all, for as much as I love just yelling into the mic, uh, you know, being a person who just screams about things that they're unsure about. Sometimes it's nice actually getting people that know what they're talking about, and then you can ask them questions and learn something. So I really enjoyed this episode. Thank you to our guests. Let's get into it. Okay, so here is my question, and I don't think that this uh, question is my brilliance. I actually think that uh, Gene Epstein brought it up on a previous podcast, and I kind of dismissed it. Uh, but I would think at this point, if I were a business, like even in Amazon, you know, I kind of look at the way consumers per like there's other indicators, which is consumer spending patterns on top of the fact that I can see that people I live in a culture of a low time preference. I can I can see that without looking at the interest rate. I can see that most people are compulsive in spending and I can look at the rate of savings and see that there's a low rate of savings. So I would think that at this point, like, you know, maybe maybe Rothbard's theory like for like I, what I was saying is yes I do think government causes bubbles and so I do think that the end result will be the same um however to say that it's solely malinvestment based off of a uh, wrongful uh, a wrongful estimation of people's time preferences I would have to think if you're Jeff Bezos you understand like uh, people aren't saving money it's like you you know what I mean I would I would think that there's other signals that it like it's an oversimplification oversimplification to say that um the only indicator that businesses are using is uh an estimation of time preference and that this is being distorted by the interest rate and so they're all making the wrong investment i would think that good capitalists would be able to say hey there's no savings rate here so this is clearly the consumption patterns you know what i mean it's like if we're looking at just stated differently and then i'll hand it back to you 
if it's kind of like the hive mind of different entrepreneurs trying to make the best decisions about the goods and services that people are going to want. The beauty of capitalism is that people who are really good at predicting what people want and they provide value, they get more capital and they can do that more and more. And guess what? We all benefit from that. That's the part of capitalism that nobody explains. And it's the most beautiful system that ever existed, that people that are good at predicting what you want tomorrow like, for example, let's just say these vaccines were good. So Pfizer was able to predict that you wanted vaccines. I want them to have more money because in 10 years from now, they might make another really good prediction and be able to get us the thing that we need exactly when we need it. That's the beauty of capitalism. So just going back to my original thing. So I would think in the high mind of people just predicting the goods and services that people want, it seems to me to be an outdated model when there clearly is no savings rate and you have a low interest rate for people to just be working off the interest rate as their primary indicator um, of time preference and the kinds of goods and services they should invest in. So I think <clears throat> valid points, valid points. I think though that the theory is still not, I think it's still a valid theory. For one, it's not so much that it's an oversimplification as is it's trying to tease out what the causal connections are. And so basically the point is, is we can trace the, the credit expansion that manipulates the interest rate and we can trace it through the economy we can trace it through the business cycle and we can see what the results of that were. But I think one, even through the great recession, interest rates weren't zero. Now I think it's, it'll be interesting to see how we analyze the, the teens and perhaps the 2020s, depending on how that goes, because yeah, then we'll be in this period where interest rates are basically zero for the last 15 years or whatever. And God knows what, what that's going to do. And I think there certainly could be work, um, as it pertains to developing or modernizing Austrian business cycle theory to kind of account for what would a zero interest rate for 20 years do to the economy. But I think also when you talk about these other signals that a business owner might use, whether it be, you know, consumer spending or whatever, you also have to consider that one, unless you have this understanding of Austrian business cycle theory, it's difficult to determine whether something's an actual boom or not. And so it can become, it becomes tricky. People get sucked in. You can get very much sucked in either in unwittingly or wittingly. Cause even if you recognize, like say you're, you know, you've read your Rothbard, you've read your Mises, it's 2004. And you still might think, and you own a small business and you're like, Oh, should I get this other, should I invest in this machinery? Austrian business cycle theory doesn't tell you exactly when the bust is coming. So it could still very much be a way to the game. The system would be like, can I get in and get out? before this before it hits the fan it's like buying doge like we all know yeah. doge is shit but sometimes I you're like my Listen, brother into buying some doge <laughs> yeah because you might be able to ride the wave and by the way to i guess speak to that that point um i have friends that are very smart that are now borrowing money to purchase more stocks now you and i like with an understanding of kind of qe1 qe2 qe whatever you look at the stock market and you go, I mean, it, it kind of fits the narrative. There's Fed money in, in the stock market. Now, it's not exactly, it's not a perfect fit for time preference per se, but I I, I mean, it kind of is because it seems like people want to save more than they're actually saving and that there's more demand for stocks than there actually is. And so it, there's a perception that there's more capital available for stocks and that people are buying it. And that probably is not reality, Right. But yeah. as we're in year 10 or 11 or whatever the fuck it is of the stock market continuously going up, 
it's pretty easy to get like, even I, I've had my money on the sidelines for a long time. And then you hear all the experts keep saying like, yeah, the bears have been talking about this thing going down forever. It's a new, there's, it's a new normal and they're just missing their opportunity for growth and there's no money anywhere else. And you're just leaving it to inflation and you're not getting returns. So listen, dumbasses, quit keeping your money on the sidelines. So speaking to that point, even I will start looking at like, shit, maybe it is time to get in. And then I don't, you know, I, I keep, yeah, yeah. I, I do keep it on the sidelines. But to speak to, I guess the most sophisticated players would kind of be in the stock market and they're all getting fooled by the, uh, in my opinion, the Fed money that exists in the system, which would speak to, uh, to your point that even sophisticated actors at some point, like you can get fooled where it just looks so good or you can't, you can't time it where you just start getting suckered. And that, and then that, you also I mean, have that, to consider yes. that like, you know, you, if you're, if you're playing, with large amounts in the stock market chances are you're doing that because if you took a large loss you'd be fine so it's also one of those things where like you become even if you understand the dynamic that's going on that this is you know this is some this is some you know inflated bubble or whatever this is not something that's incredibly sustainable you know if you unless unless you have you know like a GameStop situation where the wealthy you know uh, what was uh what's it called i forget what it's called but you know lost you know billions or dollars unless you have some like crazy instance for that you know you lose a couple million here maybe lose a couple million there perhaps it doesn't necessarily uh it doesn't mean as much to you and so you're more willing to pl just play the game right well i do think there's um you got people that are leveraged and yeah. you know even some of the sophisticated players are leveraged so if you're playing with more than what you have, it's because you really think things are going up. Um, all right. So just to bring it back to what the the uh, critical thing I was hoping to walk away with a better understanding of here, which is the uh, Austrian, um, you know, what's it called? Austrian uh, business cycle theory. Yeah. ABCT. You. you see, that's how dumb I am. Uh, the <laughs> ABCT. That that's what it means to me. Uh, is there anything that you, th any crucial pieces of the puzzle that you think we missed, or anything else that you, uh, you know, you, you feel that people who are new to this theory, or even experts that maybe didn't have their heads totally wrapped around that, any other insights you care to add? Oh man. Um, so I think one we we discussed it, but I don't think we um, we necessarily made the distinction that was necessary. So I want to make clear that it's malinvestment. And not over or under investment because the problem is not the amount of investment that took that takes place during a business cycle during the boom. The problem is where the investment is going. Okay. And so I think it's it's very important to make clear that this right, is just a theory of malinvestment. Right. If it's almost like as a theoretical, if like it, it's almost like if Keynes was right, like and government could almost make capital available. And it could be invested in things that were actually profitable and led to growth. Then there is no overinvestment because you were actually right about where to place it. Yeah. The issue is is when you're distorting the crucial signal by making it government funds that are available as opposed to real savings. Mm -hmm. When you go to spend that money, right? You're pro you're gonna you're gonna misallocate it, and so you're not gonna end up with the growth. Like in other words. The growth will never come from government spending because it, can't. it will because it's impossible for them to get right the bet of where it should go because they're distorting their own signal of where it can go. Now, when you say it can't, 
as a theoretical, let's say, like I remember, I mean, this is more of a political science idea, but it was a um, strategic trade theory, which essentially was that like, I mean, listen, you and I could probably break down why this wasn't true. And I'm 10 years out of college. I didn't pay that much attention. Uh, But the idea was like, let's say you're a country like China. So for the most part, you could have a um, like a capitalist market. And that that's probably like the best approach. But there are going to be certain crucial industries that until you hit like scale, right, you'll never actually. And uh, yeah, until you hit scale and you end up with the, you know, the marginal, whatever, all those economic things coming into uh, into function, you'll never be profitable. So take like an industry, basically, you'd be looking at cars or you'd be looking at like airlines. So if you're Europe and you want to compete with Boeing, so you got to invest in Airbus, like it's not going to happen private individuals will never have enough money to be able to crack this industry. Now, it could be that Europe's wrong. They're never going to be profitable and it's stupid. They should just be uh, specializing and there actually is no benefit to them of having Airbus and there is no benefit to the market. Um, but is it true that there's never been an industry that government said, hey, we think that this is not being serviced well by the market. We're going to make an investment in it. And then it actually led to some kind of growth. Oh, sure. Well, okay. So you saw growth in the industry that was targeted, but I don't think you can say that the economy as a whole grew. Right. Way, okay. so that's, way, almost like, that's almost like a Henry Hazlitt. Exactly. Uh, it's it's the it, broken yeah. window fallacy thing. So yes, you know, you see the infant industry growing. Sure. Great. But what you don't see is the fact that all those resources that went into that industry had to come from somewhere else in the economy. And the fact that the government had to manipulate the economy into investing into that industry means that those resources were needed elsewhere. And so because you are forcefully taking resources out of where they're needed and into an industry, you know, arbitrarily, you are necessarily going to have less growth than you had before because you're necessarily moving resources away from their highest valued ends. So I do think you can say theoretically that it cannot do this. And especially when you consider that if all the government's doing is printing more money, printing more money in no way increases the amount of resources in the economy. So by just by printing the money, you cannot, you're not creating wealth. Right. Cause you're just printing money. Cause all you're just printing money. So just to go back, because I cut you off, because I do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's your we're, podcast, man. We're making the distinction between malinvestment and overinvestment. There is no concept of overinvestment, because if you get it right, then you never put in too much money. It means there was actually growth and profits on the back end. It's only if you got it wrong, which is a product of malinvestment. Okay. Going to cut in here once more to tell you about Sheath. Dude, he sent me some t-shirts and I don't know where he gets these fabrics. I don't know what country he traveled to and found kids with the softest possible hands to work on his products, but Sheath has some, I mean, I've never worn a t-shirt like this in my whole life. I could have ran 19 marathons without bloody nipples. I only ran one. My nipples got real bloody. That should actually be the the competition in a marathon at the end is who's got the bloodiest nipples. doesn't matter who finishes first or last. It's really the fattest guy with the most sensitive nipples who endured bloody nipples for 26 miles. That's the real winner. I mean, at the end of a marathon, that, that should be the way they judge those things. Metal goes to uh, dude with the, and then maybe, you know, it would be fun if they didn't like who had to use the bathroom the most times uh, throughout the event, uh, who drank the most cups of water, uh, who, 
who's clearly the most out of shape but managed to finish under five hours, who who ran through the most uh, like muscle cramps. I feel like there'd be a way to make marathons more interesting because usually you you just check out the highlight at the end when you know some dude. Oh my God, I'm not even talking directly into this mic. No wonder it sounds so terrible. Uh, anyways, you know we're like two minutes into this ad read, and I've yet to say anything nice or good about the sheath people, and I'd like to change that. I'd like to say nice things about the sheath people because they're my favorite underwear product. I'm full-time sheath. I wear them every single day. I separate my dicks from my balls, and that's why I'm able to understand economic literature like this. In the past, when I sat down and I tried to read economic literature, I couldn't do it because, you know, my dick was getting stuck to my balls. My balls were getting stuck to my leg. It was distracting. I had sweat going into my ass crack. Then I started getting the jitters. Next thing you know, I'm not reading this book anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm in the bathroom. I'm trying to clean up my swamp ass. And then, and then I never pick up the book again. So if you want to be able to actually sit down and get tasks done, what you need is sheath underwear, where you separate your dick from your balls, incredible fabrics, keeps everything cool, great in the summer, get out there, go for a run, shed some of those LBs from being home, not going out and eating all those sandwiches and being an alcoholic. I know who my audience is. Promo code RYM, it's going to get you 20% off. I stand by it. Sheath, let's get back into it. And I think you had some other crucial elements here. Um, I think another one is kind of similar to what I was just saying, that anytime you have the credit expansion and it works its way through the economy, the business cycle, you necessarily restructure the economy in a way, you restructure it in a way that's different from what people's most valued ends are. And you, it'd be really, since everything in the economy is like dependent on what came before it, you cannot get back even. So, cause, so all the bust is, is trying, is the time preference in the straight trying to reassert itself and reallocate given what the new preferences are. But the fact, but the idea that you can get back to pre-boom. Right, 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 right. You've already, you've already put the economy on a different course. Right. No, no, no. That that makes a hundred percent sense to me. Uh, But it's almost like, uh, how do we, what, what would be like a good real world example of that? Um, Hmm. Okay. Say, well, you can, look, I, you can almost look at it this way. It's like if I were to make the bed in something that nobody wanted, like let's say I predicted um, high speed boats were going to be the best way to get into New York City. And I invested a billion dollars into these high speed boats. And then all of a sudden uh, the auto market changed, right? Where, you know, they actually have uh, really good uh, electric self-driving cars and now everyone likes being on the highway because, you know, the cars are driving themselves. There's no accident. There's no traffic. You're, you're moving a lot quicker, right? Yeah. So you could try and do a bailout for the high-speed boat industry, like, but it doesn't matter. The, the market's, the market's yeah. evolved. The market's moved on, right? Yeah. Or say, say I have a sandwich. Say I, I'm the one with this, like I'm yeah. selling hot dogs in New York. Because of, because of artificially low interest rate, I decide I want to get a second cart. And then uh, I go bankrupt because I shouldn't have done that, and it ruins me. And I have to, and my carts have to be sold off. Say you buy them now, you own the carts. Because, you know, in, in the in the bankruptcy sale, going back to the boom would have meant I just have the one cart. But we're you know we're into the bus now. I've gone bankrupt. Now I have nothing. Right. And so like there's you're not like no because in other words my business will never be at the value of a two cart business because the market never. Um, needed two carts. Yeah, so if, yeah. if government comes in and they try and prop you up so that you can remain a two-cart business, 
there is no two cart market. The two cart market yeah. never existed. I made a false calculation that I could service the market with two carts and I was wrong. And yeah. so your business needs to go bust because keeping the two carts alive, there's no market for it. Like there's no mm -hmm. value for it. You're just like, you're, you're keeping zombie going, which is the, the, you know, they talk about zombie industries. Yeah. Um, and to bring kind of the, the, the boat example, um, I guess back to, you know, the overall financial markets, right? So like any asset that is artificially propped up because like the hot dog carts, you know, you're assuming like if I go and I evaluate this guy's hot dog cart business and let's say I look at sales over the next basically 10 years and I go two carts, New York City, price of hot dogs, this is a $10 million business, right? And now it turns out that, well, actually only one, like the market is one cart's worth of hot dogs. That's all that New York City needs. So it's actually a $500,000 business, except that because of the investment he made in that other cart, he's in the red. So now it's a $0 yeah, business. No, not, yeah. No, right. So nothing. if I put together a bond against this guy's hot dog business at a, at a million dollars, right. And now someone's using that as collateral. Um, so I, I, I mean, we can come back and we can try and, you know, pay to keep this guy's cart alive so that like the bond and whatever other derivative product continue to exist at that million dollar evaluation. But the truth is that's not the actual market. So it's yeah. like, now you're building on uh, like a faulty structure, which is what you were kind of saying is like, you can't go backwards. You need to make these corrections because otherwise we're continually, uh, it, it's it's like a house of cards of bad ideas where it's like, I think I'm, I, then all of a sudden, like, I think I'm in a double hot dog cart market. And I actually think that you could be selling off the future things and creating, you know, good reserve uh, assets off of the two carts, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And like so, it's like it's an ongoing thing. It's on fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. This is. Uh, I'm loving this. Any other critical elements uh, oh, that? Um, if not, I mean, we're 40 minutes in. I thought there's going to be a 15 minute segment. We've covered a lot, so you know, you don't have to pull anything. Fun. You don't uh, have to pull anything out of your ass if you don't have it. Um, I think another thing that needs to remember is as the money works its way through the economy, you're also going to get a wealth redistribution effect or the first receivers of the new money. They get to purchase everything at the old prices because as, as the boom goes on, as more people are investing, you know, the price of wood's going to have to go up because more people are going to be bidding for the wood. But if you're one of the first people to get the new money, you get to buy the wood at the initial, at the initial pre boom price. And so what this is called a Cantillon effect, uh, uh, named after uh, French economist Richard Cantillon, where he talks about it's the, the first recipients of new money are always made better off. And it's the last recipients that are the worst off. So you get this wealth redistribution. And what is, you know, insane about it, given, you know, what the left will talk about is who is always going to be the first receivers of new money banks, from the Fed? Banks and people with power. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a no, huge so it's it's a wealth. It's a wealth redistribution. Like, they love the concept of wealth redistribution, but when you explain to them, you're actually moving uh, money away from poor people into the hands of the banks. And giving it to Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. That's not what they're looking for. No, no. Um, so I think that's another uh, important aspect of the picture because then it becomes really interesting. Like, have you seen the website? Um, the WTF happened in 1971. So basically, it has a bunch of graphs. It's like, oh, wealth inequality. Oh, you know, you know, pay versus productivity hasn't caught up. And you look at the graph and all of a sudden, all these trends start in 1971. And so the, Which you know, is what, when we went off the gold standard formally. August 15th, 1971, Nixon closed the foreign gold window. And then all of a sudden, the federal government really had no 
restrained on how much money they could print. Here we are 50 years later. All right. Bowtie boy, you represented bowties. Well, uh, no, seriously. Thank you so much. Cause I I'm at home just trying to read this stuff. And like, uh, when you get caught with the idea, it's like it, I, I, I was not a student. I didn't show up to school. I didn't talk to the professors, but sometimes when I get stuck on these things, you're like, God damn it. I wish I could throw these ideas around with uh -huh. somebody. Uh, and I think a lot of people in the audience probably feel the same way that, uh, as, as great as reading is sometimes actually being able to talk out your own stupidity and, uh, you know, figure it out with another person is, uh, um, and no one cares about these topics. So, you know, <laughs> you, you gotta, you gotta go to Twitter to find other people. No, but seriously, uh, thank you so much. And I hope you'll come on again. And, uh, oh, yeah, continue Dude, anytime you want, I love talking about this. I'll put on a bow tie and we'll talk any econ you want. Hell yeah. Hey, listen, if you're in the audience, uh, and you got a collection of bow ties, send them over my waist. So I get them to Anton so we can get a fresh bow tie on, on every episode. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. How deep is your bow tie stash, dude? It's not too deep. I've got maybe four or five, maybe six, but That's I've got, I've got two Mises ones. There's this blue one and there's a red one. And so Hell like yeah. doing Mises U, those are usually the ones I wear. Did you get to hang out with Bob Murphy at all while you were at the uh, Mises U? I got to talk to him very briefly, but he was, he was in and out because he had, uh, he was, um, I think he was at, did he go up to Freedom Fest forever? I don't know. But so Could he be. didn't, he didn't come in till Thursday. And then he, um, because of personal reasons, he had to leave quickly on Friday. So I saw him very briefly, but I didn't get to talk to him that much. Bob Murphy's the man. Uh, I have not reached out to him in a while on Twitter, uh, but he's generally speaking responsive to me that if like I hit him up with a question, uh -huh. he usually hits me back with uh, pretty good articles. Yeah. Uh, have you and... read his book Choice? No. So that's that's on my list. I that's uh, because to be honest, I tried reading uh, what's Mises's gigantic book. I tried reading Human Action. It's completely over my head. Um, it, so it, what's I? Here's here's my reading agenda right now. It's right. Uh, I'm I want to finish Reisman's book, and then I want to uh, hopefully actually track him down and have him on the show. Um, my interest in him goes all the way back to college. He changed my mind on some big topics, and there's some things I would absolutely love to talk to him about. After that, I really want to read. Um, Bob Murphy's choice. Talk to him about that. And I also really want to read uh, whatever book he put out on the financial plumbing. Uh, and then after that, um, there's so another book that someone else was telling me about. Oh, I think it's, um, where did I just see it? Oh, I, when I was, uh, there's another book that seems like it kind of might be a more accessible version of human action, kind of like Bob Murphy's choice that I think maybe I would take a look at first. Uh, but the other topic that I do have some interest in that I, I need to give some thought to is I'm not I'm not fully on board yet with uh, praxeology and human rationality. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that I disagree with any of the conclusions or the study of like uh, free markets. Uh, but there's uh, there's something that I need to sit down and think about a little bit. I just but I, like I said, Bob Murphy's choice is on my list. I got to get to it. Oh, yeah, that's a great book. I think it will work very well as a as a counter, as a much more palatable human action, which was the the intention of the book. So I think it'll be uh, I think it'll be worth. Have you read Human Action? I've read most of Human Action. I've not read the whole thing. I did 110 um, pages, and then I finally accepted that I didn't know what I was reading. And I you read up. like 110 pages, and you're like, we're still not to econ. I'm calling it. 
I did not like, I'm telling you, I spaced out every, like for the entire 110. And I brought it up with uh, Gene Epstein. He's like, yeah, just stop reading that. Dude. <laughs> See, you know, I'm conflicted. Cause I, it could be, I could just say you just start out chapter 15 or whatever when he stops the praxeology stuff. But I also kind of really like all that. I like sitting around with the action axiom, so I don't mind the first, you know, hundred fifty pages. Us, all right, give action. us give us the short on the and like I said, I'll tell you when I'm uh, when 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 I'm arguing with something, I don't have my argument yet. Like sometimes, sure. like sometimes, like I read something, I'm like that doesn't sit right with me, and then over time, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I just couldn't grasp it at first, and then other times, like I can kind of figure out, like, no, here's very specifically why I think this is wrong. Mm-hmm. I would say I'm like 70% leaning towards he's right. I can't quite figure out what my hesitation is. So like, I got to make it clear. I don't have an argument for this yet. Like okay. it's not well, something that's fine. I'm, yeah. and it's fine if you haven't gotten it yet, because I remember it took me three, it took me three Mises use of sitting through David Gordon's praxeology lecture for me to finally be like, Oh, that's right. what you're talking about. Um, so if you haven't spent much time with it, I think it's completely you know reasonable that you're still kind of unsure about it. So praxeology is just, you know, starting with the action axiom, man utilizes means he perceives will bring about his desired ends. That's basically it. And from there, we, d- we deduce the rest of economics like logic. So now there's debate in the Austrian school over the, over the status of the action axiom, whether it's empirical or not. Rothbard said that Strictly speaking, the action axiom is empirical, but once we have realized that is it is real in the real world, well, then any attempt to refute it is a is a performative contradiction. Mises would say that it's uh it's uh, that the action axiom itself is apodictic, and we can know without any experience. But that's kind of like inside baseball, you know, you know, really geeky philosophical thing. But so we start with the action axiom, and from that we uh we derive choice. Um, we derive opportunity costs. We derive profit and loss. We derive from then we get the law of margin, uh, the law <coughs> of diminishing marginal utility. Once we have the law of diminishing marginal utility, well, then we've got supply and demand curves. And so that's really all the all the praxeology is, is we just start from the the true premise that all people utilize means they perceive will bring about their desired ends. And only the fact that they do that, not, you know, it's no judgment on the means chosen no judgment on the ends it's strictly given the fact that humans do this and that this is what is quintessentially human what can we derive from that so what about and this is this is what um fascinates me about the idea is there's a eastern eastern philosopher uh by the name of um Give me one second. It, it, you know, it, it's late at night, long day. And so, sometimes like my memory is sharp as hell. Other times good, it is, man. it is not your post COVID still. No, you know, I actually, I got a, I, 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 I mean, I'll, I'll make a crazy claim here. I am finding that when I read information now, my memory recall on numbers and names and things that like I normally wouldn't remember the specifics on is almost better. Is that, is my brain somehow improved from COVID? I'm not going to make that claim. Uh, but I would be curious to know if anyone else who uh, has gotten COVID is actually finding themselves to be uh, slightly sharper. Um, I read. So anyways, I, like I'm reading right now. Um, uh, I've been saying I've been reading capitalism and I would almost ask him clearly one of the most brilliant people. Like, I, I mean, I, at least he strikes me as being completely brilliant. 
he might be one of the wealthiest people on earth. I have no idea. I don't know how much money he made. If he wrote that book and he's not extremely wealthy, right? I would venture to guess that in some ways he actually, um, there's like a almost a spiritual element to his love of capitalism as that it will benefit mankind, right? Which also suggests to me that like his work and purpose goes beyond just financial gain. At the same time, the premise of his book is, and and he's I've never read uh, I've never ran I've never read and ran, but he's kind of working off of like the rationality of just your pure human self interest, and like that's that's it, and like it's a noble goal. I grew up with I grew up with religion, and I I understand that you can like look at the financial capitalist thing as not running contradictory to religion, right? But I, I I'm I'm kind of ranting here. The Eastern philosophy book that I read. A lot of it is actually about the mechanical nature of man's brain um, and put into more modern terms. Basically, it's a mindfulness book of kind of being a little bit more aware of your thought process. And what even modern day psychology, I think, would look at is that we download a lot of behavior patterns from our parents. So even like sometimes the emotions you feel or just the way you react to things, a lot of it is actually learned and almost programmed behavior um, that not to say we're not capable of rational thought and we don't make decisions for ourselves and people are incapable of improving. Uh, but in the other book that would be on this is, uh, I think it was called think fast and slow, which is about like the dual nature of your brain psychology of like that. There's a thinking system where we're responsible for our decisions that people avoid. And then there's kind of like the secondary system, which is a little bit, um, more mechanical. Anyways, what I'm trying to get at is that, uh, while I, like, while I would agree with praxeology, there's also heroin addicts who will make their decision tomorrow that, you know, they want heroin. Is that actually a rational decision or you, you see what I'm saying? So it's like, so, okay. So when we, when we're talking about praxeology and we're talking about economics, rationality is used very much uh, in a very strict meaning in a very strict way. And it's different from say reasonableness. Rationality just means like even with the heroin addict wakes up, I want heroin or I want the high. I want to consume heroin. They utilize means they perceive will bring about their desired ends. They get up, they go get the, you know, I don't know how, is heroin the one you do with the needle? So they go get a needle. It's um, not big in the bow tie community. So you wouldn't know not, uh, I'm more of a Coke guy, but there you um, go. Got to get through them finals. <laughs> but so, Again, so th this idea of like, oh, well, well, the heroin addict, well, they're still, they're still utilizing means they perceive to bring about their desired ends. But I think what's also important is Mises isn't trying to say that every, everything that a human does fits this because there are still things that are instinctual. There are still things that are, that are human behavior, but not human action. You know, like if I threw a baseball at you and you, and you, you know, instinctually moved to get out of the way, that wasn't human action, but that's not what we're talking about. There's still we're we're talking about the purposive things that humans do, which is something that only humans can do. Because for animals, everything's instinctual. There's there's no, there's no really thought there's really no thought process going on for anything that they do. But we have that ability. We have the ability to turn it off as well, in some degrees where we just don't want to think about you know our actions or our choices that much. But it doesn't change the fact that we are still thinking people. And so rationality just means. Did you utilize a means that you thought would bring about what you wanted? Now, th it doesn't mean that your end was reasonable. It doesn't mean that your means were reasonable. You know, I, 
I can uh, I can drink cyanide because I think it'll quench my thirst. That was a rational human behavior as far as economics is concerned, as far as praxeology is concerned. Was it reasonable? Of course not, because cyanide will not quench my thirst. Right, at least so not. Let's look at, let's look at this example because I think every single person listening to this show has probably experienced this. You need a job, right? You 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 got fired or you quit a job. You need a new job. And there's the three, four months where every single day you wake up, you say, hey, I'm going to go find that job. You jerk off until you can't. At some point, you end up drinking and you go through this process until you got no money left. And then you finally go, shit, you know what? I do have to actually work on this resume and you work on the resume. Those four months, no one really enjoys them. Maybe the first week you enjoy it. After that, you just kind of feel stuck. And maybe this is too personal to me, but I bet more people, I bet people have, have experienced this. And, and maybe, maybe I'm just uh, projecting my own compulsive behavior and how much I have to go through in my life to overcome my own compulsive behavior. But like, there's a gap of time there where I would say you're not being that rational and you're not really, uh, you're like, you're almost not in sync with your brain. You've got your rationality, which is telling you like, Hey, you just got to sit down you're going to have to work on your resume and then you're going to go get your job. And then you got some other part of your brain that like, because of the financial structure, fight incentives, and maybe like you're not actually forced at this time to go do I, what I'm almost describing in a way is um, I think like a lot of people would, would understand, Hey, I should be saving for the future. They don't quite do it. Like most of us actually understand generally speaking, what nutrition would be. And we just kind of don't do it. Most human beings, like it, there's a self, except for the rare human beings that then end up doing like ridiculously well. And the biggest indicator of success is going to be your ability to delay gratification. If you were to kind of like, I mean, there's other things, there's high IQ. I mean, there's you know, having skills, like there's a lot, but I'm just saying like the, the biggest indicator is going to be, so it's like a lot of us can look at life and go, I know how I should act. And then there's a giant disconnect kind of between uh, what we know we should be doing and what we're actually doing. And so I guess when I start hearing about like the objective reality and how every decision is towards our end, um, I think it, it overlooks some of the mechanical nature of our lives and like some level of determinism that does, that does exist in some of your daily decisions. So I think that I point taken that there are a lot of things that can influence the way that you think or the way you perceive acting. But I think this still comes down to the fact that, you know, a bear never ponders whether he should be eating that fish. So even, even you having the wherewithal to say, mm, am I wasting my time not working on my right, resume? But then on the same note, like a human could think about, you know, Hey, I'm going to engage in this process of delaying gratification but they also might not. And actually, if you look at the numbers, especially like of human beings in this world, how many people don't, then from like a statistical standpoint, you can almost say most decisions probably aren't made along that conscious line. Like in other words, human beings have the capability of making decisions along some sort of a conscious line. Most decisions probably are not made at that point. And I bet some human beings are almost so removed from that process that they never make decisions along. You know what I mean? So that would almost be a counter argument to say most decisions made by human beings, like, yes, they could. And like, that's almost like the job of man in a spiritual sense is like elevate your, yourself to almost the 
more conscious decision-making process, but that's almost like part of the journey is how do I get more of my brain under the control of like my actual consciousness, which I venture to guess like some people aren't even aware enough to like think, Hey, I should be investing in this. Well, sure. But I still think even the demonstration of high time preference, it's, it's still action that even if you have very little thought that went into it, that was still part of your calculation to where it was, you, you, you subconsciously recognize that you would get more satisfaction out of just doing something without thinking about it that much, as opposed to actually taking the time to sit and think about it. And so I think even then you're still, even subconsciously, you're still making decisions, even if you're not literally thinking about them, every single thing that you do, you're still, your brain is still working through them. Like your brain probably isn't actively saying every time you walk through a door, you know, to grab the doorknob and everything, but it's still, you're going somewhere. You have an end in mind. You know, you're, you're opening the door from your bedroom to get to the kitchen so you can go get a sandwich. Are you thinking about that the entire process? No, but that's still something you're doing. And it's still human action in that regard because you're still exiting your bedroom. You're still going toward your kitchen and the pursuit of a sandwich to satisfy the hunger that you're feeling. Even if, maybe when I go back and reread it, maybe I'm like, uh, I'm making the mistake of uh, drawing implications of what he's trying to say versus kind of what you said, which is like, he's almost uh, maybe overstating or overthinking the fact that everything's in action, which I can't, I can't argue with the fact that everything's in action. The question, which I think is the secondary question is if people engage in a lot of irrational behavior that is against their own true self-interest, like if you were to sit down with them, discuss their goals and everything that they did was not in line with those goals, um, it, would there be some sort of an argument that somebody should step in and maybe even through force try and help them achieve those goals? So th the secondary question from there, which is where, you know, I would say, I don't actually think that, you know, it, it's almost like people got to hit their own bottoms. They got to purge their own problems in their brain. It's like AA, you know, you, you can't just, if you ban hair, it doesn't matter. If you got, you're going to eat donuts till you die. If you got some sort of a thing in your brain that's leading to destructive behavior and then on a, like on an even more larger centralized government scale, I would also say, Hey, listen, yeah, you might go humans are irrational. And so there should be this government, you know, centralized thing. Uh, but guess what? It, it's an even worse system. Uh, but that, that, that's like a secondary argument, right? Against centralized government, which is that it doesn't work which is kind of different than the moral argument of um, what might just exist in saying that, no, since humans are always rational and making a decision in their own best interest, no one should be interrupting that process, right? Whereas I so, might say, so it's, yes. Everyone is pursuing what they think is in their own self-interest, their best self-interest. No, but I'm saying but how many choices do we make where if asked, a person would even acknowledge, yes, this isn't in my self-interest. Like if you were to ask someone when they're eating McDonald's, like, hey man, should be eating oh, a sure, double sure, cheeseburger sure. right now? They go, no, of course not, but I'm doing it. So, but they're still, they're demonstrating that their value scale, that their preferences, they, they value more eating the Big Mac than being the pinnacle of health. 
And so this is where we get into, again, this distinction where it may seem semantic, but I don't think it is, where their actions are rational, but they don't have to be reasonable. And, and, and like in the same way that the cyanide example that I gave, where, you know, I drink the poison because well, I just, think- I, I know that this is, that now we're playing almost like a semantic joke game. Isn't doing something you know to be unreasonable, not rational? Not not given the praxeological definition. And I think if we're going to have a conversation of economics and praxeology, we need to use the internal definitions so that we can stay on the same page. Okay. Because cause you're right, because you're right. Colloquially, ra- uh, rational and reasonable are used interchangeably. But 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 Mises does not view them as interchangeable. And All so, right. so, so, so I'm do- trying to parse out the distinction. Just to recap, we got an introduction to Mises, which we weren't even, uh, which we weren't even expecting. And like I said, I'm working my way up to it. And uh, Reisman or Reisman, uh, George Reisman, Reisman, is it Reisman? Uh, is one of the uh, one of the, like you know he's he's one of the students of me. Like he's drawing off of his work, so I, I would venture to guess that upon concluding and reading more of this book, I'll probably have uh, cl- be closer to the work of Mises and his understandings. I uh, dude, once again, this was fascinating shit. I wasn't even stoned and I felt like I was sitting in my dorm room stone being like, nah, that's not the way man works. So this was a thrill. We'll definitely do it again. Thanks dude. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me on. I had a great Anything time. Anything you want to plug? I don't know. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at a Chamberlain 97. So a C H A M B E R L I N 97. Beauty. All right. All right. Thanks dude.